0: Father, we learn in your word that there are many ways to worship you. We worship you in song. We worship you by praying to you. We worship you by confessing our sins to you and seeking your forgiveness. Lord, we worship you by serving one another. And another way we worship you is by attending to your word, coming before you to sit and to hear what your word has to say, eager to believe it and eager to obey it, and quick to repent when we see any areas of our lives that are um, out of line from what your word is calling us to and Lord we just pray that um, we would continue to worship you even as we come to your word together this morning Lord I pray that I would worship you um, in the preaching of your word that this would not be some kind of performance or some uh, effort to elevate myself but may Christ alone be elevated Lord may he be Seated on high, may your people love him more because of what they hear today. Be more committed to him than ever before. We ask for your Spirit's help in teaching us your word and in showing us our Lord and Savior, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're back in 1 Corinthians this morning, chapter 1. So turn there in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're looking at verses 10 through 17. And I will go ahead and read that for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say, you were baptized in my name. for uh, Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Paul is writing to a church in conflict. And conflict within Relationships is typically not something that we enjoy. It's something we shrink from. And the closer that the relationship is, the more painful it is when there's conflict with that person. And conflict within families is often the most painful conflict because it's so raw and there's no way to distance yourself from the one you're in conflict with. And it's the same with the church because the church is a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so there is no kind of pain like the pain that comes from conflict within the church. And again, the church at Corinth, as we see in this passage, is a church in conflict and therefore it's a church that's in pain. These believers were not united. They were all torn apart because of misplaced commitments and competing loyalties and this division these quarrels it all stemmed from a failure to maintain their focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ we saw that since the very beginning of this letter last week Paul has been redirecting this church's attention to Christ he mentioned Christ every single verse 10 times in nine verses And he starts out in verse 10 mentioning him again. He's pointing their attention to Christ. Because only Christ can unite a church. When the members of a church are committed to Christ, the church experiences a great level of unity. But when the members of a church are more committed to themselves than to Christ, that church will experience a great amount of painful division. And if we, as the Church of Christ in New Woodstock, if we want to continue to enjoy the unity that we are enjoying, and if we want to grow in the experience of that unity, then we need to pay close attention to what Paul writes in these verses, verses 10 through 17. Look at verse 10. This is our first point this morning. The first point is that commitment to Christ brings unity. Commitment to Christ brings unity. Paul begins here in verse 10 to get into the meat of this letter. Last week we saw his greeting to the church. Now he is getting to the point. He is writing about what he wants to address with these believers. And he begins speaking about unity because apparently one of the biggest problems in this church was disunity. And we're clued into that fact because Paul will spend the next four chapters trying to root out the issues that have caused this disunity. And he tells us in verse 10, before he begins unpacking all of it, he tells us in verse 10 what the secret to true unity is and its commitment to Christ. That is what brings unity. Look at verse 10. He says, Now I exhort you, brethren... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. So he begins by exhorting them to pursue unity, and he describes this unity in three different ways. First, what is unity? It's that you all agree. That you all agree. It's literally that you all say the same thing. Secondly, unity in the church is that there be no divisions among you. No divisions among you. And thirdly, unity involves being made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. So Paul here, he's reminding them of what the church of Christ ought to look like and sound like. The church ought to be a place where God's people dwell together in obvious love for and in harmony with one another. And that harmony, it ought to show up in how we talk, it ought to show up in the way we all think, and it ought to show up in the type of goals that we pursue together and the decisions that we make. Now this kind of unity seems impossible. How can we all talk the same way? How can we all have the same mindset? How can we all be pursuing the exact same thing? Well, first of all, the context of these first four chapters clearly show that Paul doesn't have in mind that we become carbon copies of one another. He's not saying that you and I have to have the exact same favorite food. He's not saying that we all have to agree on what color the carpet should be, neon orange. Okay? I argued strongly that that not be the color. I'm just kidding. That's not the color we're putting in here. But we're not all to agree on the color. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about gospel speech. The way we think in terms of the gospel, the goals that we pursue as it's oriented to the gospel. That's what he's calling us to talk the same about and to think the same about and to pursue in the same way. But still, that seems like a tall order. How can this kind of unity happen? Because who decides the way we talk? Who decides how we should all be thinking? Who decides what the goals are that we should all agree that we're pursuing? Is it the pastor? Is it the congregation? Should we all take a vote on what these things are? Who is it that sets the standard for our speech and our thoughts and our decisions? look at how Paul begins this verse he says I exhort you brethren by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ first thing I want you to notice is that Paul refers to them as his brothers his brothers and his sisters in Christ at this point he's not lording it over these believers he's not setting himself up as the ultimate authority he is speaking on their level he's saying you my brothers my sisters They are his family. They are on the same level together as the family of God. And he goes on to point to who the ultimate authority is. Who is it that decides how we talk, how we think, what we pursue? He says, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord, He is our Master. He's the one who decides how we talk. He's the one who decides what our mindset ought to be. He's the one who tells us what we should be pursuing together. So, how is it that we can all arrive at this kind of unity in our speech, in our thoughts, and our actions? As we each individually pursue the same Lord, as we conform our talk and our thoughts and our deeds our pursuits to the same Lord Jesus Christ, we will find that we get closer together. We will find that we talk the same way because we're serving the same Lord. We think the same way because our minds are being renewed by the same word of God. We'll pursue the same things because the same Lord has given us a new heart and he's put the same kinds of godly desires within us. That's where unity comes from. It comes from a commitment to our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the secret to unity in a body of believers, commitment to Christ. That's what brings unity. But as Paul was writing to these Corinthian believers, he tells us here, he tells them, you are not united. So what does that tell us? It tells us right there that they're not pursuing Christ the way they ought to be pursuing him. And we'll see in verses 11 and 12 that instead these believers are committed to mere men. And that brings us to our second point. If commitment to Christ brings unity, commitment to men brings disunity. Commitment to men brings disunity. Look at verse 11. Paul writes, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. This is the reason he begins the letter by exhorting them, To unity. He calls them to pursue unity because they're not pursuing unity right now. And he lets them know that he's heard this from a reliable source. He mentions the people of Chloe. And he doesn't tell us anything more about Chloe. So we can infer that Chloe must have been well known by these believers. They were already well acquainted with her it appears. And Paul has heard this from associates of hers. And notice, it's not just one person from Chloe that he's heard this from. He says the Chloe's people, not Chloe's person, literally those of Chloe, not the one from Chloe. He has multiple witnesses who are telling him about this problem. So it's not hearsay, it's not gossip. He has multiple witnesses coming to him with this very real, very well-established concern for his beloved Corinthian brothers and sisters. And what has he heard about this body of believers? There are quarrels among you. And this is not, a merely, uh, not merely a respectful difference of, a, of opinion about something. No, this is damaging contention. This is painful strife that has infected these body, this body of believers. The church's harmony has been disrupted, and their witness to a watching world is being totally undermined. Remember what Jesus said that if we love one another, the world will know what about us? That we are His disciples. If we don't love one another, the world will not think we are Jesus' disciples. In verse 12, Paul gets more specific as to what kinds of quarreling are going on. Verse 12, he says, Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Now remember what Paul said back up in verse 10. He said, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all, what? You all agree, literally, that you all say the same thing. But here in verse 12, what does he find them saying? They're all saying different things. They're saying, I'm of Paul. I'm a fanboy of Apollos. Well, I like Cephas. Oh, well, I'm of Christ. Remember when we went through our overview of, of the city of Corinth. In Corinthian culture, there was an obsession with status and honor and prestige. Everybody in the city of Corinth was trying to get ahead of everyone else and apparently that that mindset has carried over into the church people in the church of Corinth are trying to outdo one another by associating themselves with certain teachers of the church we can imagine them saying i'm of paul he planted this church oh you're of paul Well, I'm of Apollos. That guy can really preach. He can preach Paul right under the table. Oh, yeah, well, I'm of Cephas. Peter, you know, the guy Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to? Oh, yeah, well, I'm of Christ. So obviously, I'm smarter and wiser than any of you. Apparently, if you walked into the church at Corinth, it would be like you were walking into a class of kindergartners. It's childish bickering and that is not how the church is supposed to function but all too often that is exactly how we find churches functioning or malfunctioning too often things that are fine to have differences of opinion on become things that the people consider worth breaking fellowship over we've all heard these conversations "Oh, the service is too long the service is too short The music is too loud and it's too long. The music is too quiet and it's too short and on and on and things like this. When that takes hold of a church, it is indicative of the fact that the devil has gained a foothold in that congregation because the devil would like nothing more than for you to be a bickering church so that the world looks at you, looks at how you profess Christ, but says... What has Christ done for you? What do I want with this Christ that you are proclaiming? You are eating each other alive. I want nothing to do with that, and we give the world an excuse to reject Christ. Turn to James chapter 3, where he speaks of how division is directly related to the activity of Satan. James chapter 3. Verse 13. James writes this, he says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, that's a pretty perfect description of the church at Corinth. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom, speaking of this jealousy, this selfish ambition, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above, that is the wisdom that truly comes from God, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. So you see there, when division comes within the church due to jealousy and selfish ambition, James says that's demonic. We have allowed the evil one to have a presence among us because of our own fleshly lusts and pursuits. This commitment to men that brings disunity is very foolish. It's very foolish. And Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't just name the problem. He goes on to describe how serious this problem is. In verses 13 through 16, Paul shows the folly of this sin. And this is our third point. Men were not crucified for you. Men were not crucified for you. What I mean by that will get clear as we go through these verses. But before we start working through them, keep verse 12 in your mind. We're saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Why are they quarreling like this? Why are they splitting up into factions and naming themselves after favorite teachers? They're doing that because they've begun to devalue Christ. Christ. And Paul will make that clear in verses 13 through 16. They have stopped fixing their eyes upon Jesus. That's clear from verse 12. They've been putting mere men on the same level as Jesus Christ. They have exalted men. And when you exalt men, you inevitably demean Christ. Now these Corinthians, they probably would have never said that Paul is on the level of Christ or that Apollos is on the level of Christ but by the way they're talking the way that they're willing to divide over preferences regarding teachers shows that they have in fact elevated men to the level of Jesus Christ it's by the way that they're talking I'm of Paul I'm of Apollos I'm of Cephas even the Christ crowd the ones who are saying well I'm of Christ they are just as guilty because they are using the name of Christ to exalt themselves. They're using it like a bat to hit each other over with and say, Look at me, I'm better. They're no better. So in verse 13, Paul seeks to show them how they've been abusing and devaluing Christ by exalting man. Verse 13, he begins, he says, Has Christ been divided? Has Christ been divided? The church is the body of who? The body of Christ. And these Corinthians, by developing, forming these little factions, these little cliques, and competing with one another, they have rent asunder the body of Christ. It ought not to be that way. And then he asks a couple of really shocking questions. He goes on in verse 13. He asks, Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He's asking, he's focusing on himself. He could have put Cephas's name in there. He could have put Apollos' name in there, but he's focusing on himself. He says, did I die for your sins in order to save you so that you're now using my name like something that you belong to? And when you were baptized, was it my name that was proclaimed over you as you publicly identified yourself with the one who gave you new life and who is now your Lord? And the obvious answer is no. No, you weren't crucified for us. We weren't baptized in your name. And so Paul is saying, then why in the world are you boasting in my name? Why are you rallying around the name of mere men? He's showing them that by boasting in mere men, these Corinthians have been unwittingly blaspheming. Remember what the Jews accused Jesus of? Blasphemy? Because he was elevating himself to the place of God because they didn't believe he was God and so they accused him of blasphemy. That's one form of blasphemy where you speak of a man as if he's God. That's blasphemy. That's what they were doing with Paul, Apollos, Cephas. Another form of blasphemy blasphemy, is when you deny God the place that is due God alone. When you say that somebody else is on his level, that's the other side of the coin of blasphemy. And these believers were doing both. They were elevating men to the place of God. And by doing that, they were denying Christ his sole spot as God, as Christ. I saw a disturbing example of this surrounding the last election, really, on either side of the election. There was two flags that kind of competed against one another. And this flag on the top, it said, Jesus is my Savior. And on the very same flag, right underneath that, one flag said, Trump is my president. And then there was a competing flag. At the very top, it said, Jesus is my Savior. And then right underneath that, it says, Biden is my president. I don't see how those flags are anything other than blasphemy. Because when you pair the holy, righteous, exalted name of Jesus Christ with a mere sinner, you are demeaning the glorious name of Jesus Christ. And that ought never happen. Christ does not share the stage with anyone. He alone is Christ. And so these Corinthians, by arguing, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm Cephas, I'm of Christ, they're throwing the name of Christ around and exalting men like he is not who he is. Martin Luther, the German monk whom God used to spark the Protestant Reformation back in the 1500s, This is what he said when he learned that some individuals were naming themselves after him. They were calling themselves Lutherans. Listen to what Martin Luther said about that. He said, quote, In the first place, I ask that men make no reference to my name. Let them call themselves Christians, not Lutherans. What is Luther? After all, the teaching is not mine. Neither was I crucified for anyone. St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 would not allow the Christians to call themselves Pauline or Petrine, but Christian. How then should I, poor, stinking, maggot fodder that I am, come to have men call the children of Christ by my wretched name? Not so, my dear friends. Let us abolish all party names and call ourselves Christians, after him whose teaching we hold," This kind of unwitting blasphemy is not something we are, any of us, immune to. We all have our favorite teacher, we all have our favorite preacher that we enjoy listening to, that we recommend to others, and there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but we must always be extremely careful not to put those men on par with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the name of a mere man starts to be on our lips and in our thoughts, as much as or more than the name of Christ, then that is a clue that we have begun to devalue Christ and we've begun to wrongly elevate man. And the only fruit that comes from that is division in the body of Christ. Paul goes on in verse 14. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. And the providence of God when Paul planted the church at Corinth He did not end up baptizing all that many believers. And he's thankful for that because, according to verse 15, in the the Lord's providence, that prevented people from exalting his name more than they already were. Paul reminds these believers that neither he nor Apollos nor Peter were crucified for them. And so their commitment to mere men is incredibly blasphemous. And foolish. And then in verse 17, Paul seeks to, again, to redirect their focus off of men and onto Christ by telling them, and this is our fourth point Christ was crucified for you. Christ was crucified for you. Before we look at that verse, in Corinthian culture, clever speech was held in very high regard. If you were a skilled speaker, if you were able to dazzle people with displays of worldly wisdom, you could quickly climb that social ladder in Corinth, which everybody was trying to climb. And a good way to climb it was to be a skilled speaker. And if you were a skilled pe- uh, speaker, people in Corinth would seek to ride your coattails. The wealthy would seek to become Your patrons, they would seek to support you financially so that their name could be associated with yours. And as your name rose as a skilled speaker, their name would rise along with it because they could take credit for your rise. They said, well, I support him. He can do what he does because I'm supporting him. And looking back at verse 12, we see that the Corinthian believers had been treating Paul and Apollos and Cephas And even Christ himself in that way. And we can understand that kind of thinking. Oftentimes in the church, someone will donate a large sum of money to help the church with a special need. And he or she will often do that not to serve Christ, not to serve the church, but to exalt their own name. Someone gives a big gift, we announce his name from the pulpit and the congregation applauds for him and he basks in that. Or someone buys a piano for the church or some new pews and we put her her name on a plaque on the back of each pew or on that piano so that everyone knows forever and ever who to thank for these pews that they're sitting in or for that beautiful music that they're listening to. Other times people will seek to rub shoulders with the big name pastor, with the big congregation. And they're doing it not to sincerely seek help from him or counsel or to help him in ministry, but to have their name associated with his. Because they want to be the envy of all who see them schmoozing it up with the pastor. And in verse 17, Paul destroys that kind of thinking. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Christ did not send Paul to Corinth to impress people. He didn't send him there in order to win a following for Paul. He didn't send Paul there so that Paul could climb the social Ladder. Paul didn't go around baptizing people in his own name so that he could become the next big thing in Corinth. And when Paul preached, he did not rely on clever speaking. Paul was not trying to impress people or to dazzle anyone with his intellect or his fancy words. Why not? Because Paul understood that the people of Corinth were in rebellion against the Lord Jesus Christ, and that they were dead in their sins, and that they were headed straight for the pit of hell. And clever talk and fancy speech was not going to fix that for them. Paul understood that only the cross of Christ could fix that problem. Paul himself could not save anyone. He was not there to convert them to him. There was nothing he could do for them. Only Christ can save sinners through what he accomplished on the cross and dying in the place of sinners. So when Paul preached, he purposed to not allow anything in his message or in his manner of speaking to come between Christ and the sinner. He wanted there to be nothing in between the cross and the Corinthians. Paul did not want anything at all to nullify the power of the cross he didn't want to nullify the cross make it void by redirecting people from the cross instead redirecting them to himself and today there are too many preachers who are seeking to win a following for themselves they try to impress people with clever stories impressive sounding arguments and entertaining deliveries And there are too many congregations who eat that up, that that's what they want. That's why they go there, to be entertained. They're seeking to follow a mere man so that they can look cool or they can boast about their pastor's worldly success. When you and I, when we come to church to hear the word preached on a Sunday morning, what should be our expectation? What should we be thinking about and if we had a chance to talk with a preacher, whether it's me or some other person up behind this pulpit, or if we go to another church, if we had a chance to speak with that preacher before the service, what does that preacher need to hear? Preacher, show me my Savior. I don't need your silly stories. I don't need your clever anecdotes. I don't need your sophisticated arguments. I don't need for you to be relevant to the culture because, in fact, you are irrelevant. You did not hang on the cross for me. You did not walk out of that tomb for me. There's nothing you can do for me. So get yourself out of the way and point me to my Lord. And if you will not do that, then go sit down and let someone else stand behind that pulpit who will point me to Christ. That's what every preacher needs to hear. That's what every congregant should long for, to hear from Christ. Because only Christ can save you. Only Christ can satisfy you forever. The preacher, the mere man, can do nothing for you. You and I need Jesus Christ. Climbing the social ladder will not save your soul from the wrath of God. That pastor or that teacher that you like He cannot cleanse you from your sins. He cannot get you into heaven. Only Jesus Christ can do that. So pursue him. And when you talk with your neighbor or with your friend or your lost family member, remember that you cannot bring that person to faith by impressing him or by beating her into submission by the force of your powerful arguments. Only Jesus Christ can save that person. So tell them about Jesus and what he did to save sinners. And then plead with them to repent of their sins and to trust in him. And follow the example of Paul, don't you dare, don't I dare, stand between the sinner and the cross. There's a reason that cross is on this side of the veil, not the other side. We don't need to cover over the cross by relying on ourselves or trying to impress people with ourselves. We need to present Christ to the sinner. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us, Lord, not to get in the way of the cross, that you would help us to be committed, all of us individually in this church, to be committed to Christ and to pursue Christ. And if we do that, we will see our hearts being knit together more and more, Lord. And division will have no place here because we are all following Christ together and his word goes. And if I am saying something that cannot be found in the word of God, I can give that up. I don't need to cling to that so dearly. Lord, help us all to rally around Christ, to boast in Christ, not in men. We pray in his name. Amen.